Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. The Signpost webinar series is brought to you in association with the National Rural Network, Food Drink Ireland, and Dairy Sustainability Ireland. Sustainability is often likened to the three-legged stool. If one aspect is out of balance, the others fall out of balance also. And the same can be said about environmental sustainability. If we only focus on one element, such as climate change, we run the risk of neglecting other aspects, such as water quality, biodiversity, or soil quality. So I'm delighted to be welcoming uh, Jenny Deacon from the EPA Catchments Programme back to the Signpost webinar today for an update on water quality and taking a look at uh, what's happening in the Blackwater catchment in the southeast. So Jenny, you're very welcome back to the Signpost webinar. Thanks very much, Mark, and good morning, Pat, too. I can't believe it's almost a year since I did the last one. I don't know where the time has gone. Yeah, it is hard to believe. It's been a strange old year. And uh, yeah, you were you were giving us uh, an update back then. So, I mean, it's, it's great to, uh, to have you back and to continue the story on water quality. So, Jenny, uh, just for, for those uh, who ha- weren't able to join us for your last uh, presentation, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in the EPA and uh, you're going to give us, uh, tell us a story about the Blackwater catchment as well, is that right? Absolutely. Thanks a million, Mark. Yeah, so I work in the Environmental Protection Agency. I'm in the catchments unit there in the Office of Evidence and Assessment. And our role there is to really pull together all of the water quality evidence base to have a look and see what are the pressures impacting on our waters to inform the River Basin Management Plan. And we have a new river basin management plan in preparation at the moment, the third cycle river basin management plan, Department of Housing, uh, local government and heritage are driving that. And so a lot of the evidence base that you're going to see this morning is actually feeding directly into the river basin management plan. Brilliant. And what's the timeline on that, uh, Jenny? Oh, no, no, that's a tricky question. <laughs> I would say it's imminent. <laughs> it's, okay. it's late, in fact, but uh, but imminent, yeah. Okay. So... I'm going to, uh, in the early part of my presentation, just give a very brief update on the water quality situation. Some of these slides I did present in my in my presentation last year, so it's just to kind of set the scene, I suppose, in terms of water quality. But then the main part of my presentation is to actually move in and have a look at some of the tools we have now to really help us to target in as I said in the, in the title there, where the local solutions might need to go. The right measure in the right place is our mantra. So I'm gonna show some of the tools and then also point you to where you can find those tools for yourselves. Okay, so by way of overview, our water quality uh, is, we've, we've a mixed story, I suppose, in terms of, uh, of the condition and how the trends have been changing over time. So there's four blocks in this slide. If we move to the left-hand side first, That's a map of Ireland that shows the ecological water quality across all of our rivers and lakes in Ireland and the estuaries and coastal waters are in there too. And the the status as it's called is classified according to five different categories, high, good, moderate, poor and bad. And in, in simple terms, the blues and the greens are grand and the oranges and yellows and, and reds not so good. So when you look at the whole of the country, and sum it all up, almost half of our rivers are unsatisfactory and a higher proportion of our estuaries are in trouble. But the problems are widespread across the country and they're also mixed. So while I'm gonna focus on agriculture today, given this is the signpost series, we do also have a lot of the evidence base to support where the problems are with urban wastewater and septic tanks and the urban runoff situation. So it's, we have all the evidence base to underpin our, our assessments across all sectors. So moving into the middle block then, how has the status been changing over time between 2007 and 9 at the bottom of the graph up to uh, the most recent full ecological status assessment? And what we can see is the graph shows a percentage of river water bodies at the different status classes. So the high status ones, and this is reflected in in the little graph in the middle at the bottom as well, the high status has been in decline right back since the 1990s. And that is a real concern. There are special, most pristine waters in the uplands, often in the uplands, and they are the refuges for recanalization when when rivers are impacted. So these are really our, our precious places. And that's a real concern. 
The other concern, going back to the middle graph at the top there, is that we're getting an increase in the moderate and poor water quality over time, uh, over the last 10 years. And that's also a concern. So we've, we have a bit of work to do at both ends. On the right hand side, though, there is a, a chink of light and some early signs of a, a positive story in the priority areas fraction. Now, some of you will be aware of these. These were 190 areas that were selected in the second cycle river basin management plan to target all our efforts in the one place to try and improve water quality. And that little map there shows where they are. And what we're seeing is, although it still is early days, because the work in those areas only started in 2018, there has been a net improvement in those areas relative to what's going on around them. These are the areas that ASAP work in, for example, and many of you will be familiar with that program. So what are the impacts then to waters when they are in trouble? This graph shows you for all the water bodies that we have, the nutrients is by far the biggest problem, the greatest number of water bodies, over a thousand water bodies. Morphology is the next category, and that is uh, it refers to the physical habitat setting. It also brings in sediment, and it, it's more of the physical characteristics of the habitat. Uh, so really, I suppose, nitrogen and phosphorus, excess nutrients are our most widespread problem. And you can see what happens in our water environment on the right-hand side in the picture when we do have too many nutrients. It's an overgrowth of the algae, and it chokes up the water environment uses up the oxygen and really makes it an unpleasant place for everything else to live. So the key impacts, um, the top two pictures there show uh, what happens with too much phosphorus on the left and too much nitrogen on the right. The phosphorus tends to impact on our freshwater. So that's a lake that's in trouble there with too much algae and the nitrogen tends to be more important in our estuarine waters. And that's a, a beach down along the South coast. But the other two areas, which I'm not going to touch on so much today, that are of concern in under the morphology uh, bracket are drainage and sediment, where we get inappropriate uh, drainage maintenance going on in some river channels. You can see the picture there. We get a, a, a excess sediment getting into our streams and they, the sediment can clog the spaces in between the gravels and again cause damage to the habitat conditions. And then on the right hand side we have a small number of water bodies relatively speaking that have uh, chemicals and uh, in relevant to the, the agriculture sector I suppose MCPA would be our biggest challenge there in terms of drinking water. So when we pull together all of the different evidence bases that we have and look at all the problems and then look at all the the land use is going on and all the sectors in the in the areas of of the catchment areas to the water bodies we look and see what are the significant pressures causing these impacts this chart shows the number of water bodies that are impacted by each of the pressure types down along the the x-axis and agriculture is by far the biggest bar across all water body types but in many ways that isn't a surprise because agriculture is also the most widespread land use that we have the next bar there is hydromorphology and hydromorphology is, as I mentioned, the changes and alterations to the physical habitat conditions. And the, the reasons for these physical changes can be across all sectors. So they're sort of grouped uh, out on their own there. So moving back then to uh, the rural environment and looking at nitrogen and phosphorus and they look, they behave very differently in the landscape. So we need to manage them quite differently in terms of trying to target the, the right measure in the right place. So if we take the left-hand side first, the phosphorus issues. The picture there is a catchment in County Louth and it's high risk for phosphorus loss. We've got poorly draining soils, overland flow is dominant. We tend to see that we get water quality problems in areas where there can often be a, a, an extensive land use because we don't have a good relationship between farming intensity and phosphorus in waters. And that's because it takes such a very tiny amount of phosphorus to cause a water quality problem, that it's more driven by the soils than it is the farming intensity. And so the, act, the actions there that we need to take are to break that pathway and stop that overland flow getting into those uh, streams. And if we can do that successfully, the time it takes to improve the situation can be of the order of weeks to months. Phosphorus, as I mentioned earlier, is a key issue for our rivers and lakes in particular. 
So on the other side of the story, then we've got the nitrogen story. And the little picture there shows you a typical nitrogen risky catchment where you've got freely draining soils. The nitrogen is soaking down into through the soils into groundwater and then underground into our rivers and off down to our estuaries where it causes the biggest problem. We do have a much better relationship between nitrogen losses and farming intensity. So it's a different situation. And the types of measures that we're going to need are, are better source control and management of the leaching losses. The lag time though, to actually achieve these improvements can be of the order of months to years. So it's a, it's a step longer, I suppose, in, in, in looking at the improvement time. And it is a key issue for the estuaries. So we know now from our evidence bases, from all our monitoring information, where we need phosphorus measures and where we need nitrogen measures. So the, the blue areas on the map are places where we need phosphorus and sediment measures. And essentially, they're the same measures. It's about breaking the pathway. And these types of measures have also got benefits, co-benefits for biodiversity. So if we can, for example, a buffer strip, we can put in a buffer strip to break the pathway. And we also manage that buffer strip for biodiversity. We can achieve multiple benefits. The orangey areas then are the areas where we need measures to reduce nitrogen loss. And these are uh, the types of measures we need are to control the losses of nitrogen at the source. But these types of measures also have co-benefits for climate and ammonia. So they're the same, it's the same package of measures. Can we achieve more than one outcome with the same measure? And really we're looking, as I said at the start, for the right measure in the right place. So now I'm going to show you some of the tools that we've been developing to really help target in this right measure in the right place. So starting with phosphorus then, we've developed a pollution impact potential map, as we call it, for uh, one for phosphorus and one for nitrogen, which I'll show you shortly. So this is the map, the darker the blue, the higher the risk of losing phosphorus over land in agriculture areas into watercourses. It doesn't say necessarily that those blue areas are causing a problem, but what it does say that if there is a problem, those blue areas are the first places to look. So I've got one slide to show you the, the complexity of the model structure, I suppose, just to give you a sense of what it, what's in it and how we developed it. Uh, so the, the picture of the map there, I'll, I'll come back to in a moment, but just to have a look how we've developed the model. We've looked at the bedrock information, the subsoils, the soils, and those three together tell us about the hydrogeological susceptibility in the landscape for water and nutrients moving. We then put on top of that data from Department of Agriculture, looking at the LIPIS and the AIMS data. So what's actually going on land in terms of source load on top of that? And then we've looked at the delivery paths. So how is the overland flow moving in those poorly draining soils? And then the final uh, cherry on top is the delivery points. So we've got overland flow pathways now through the landscape and the red dots show where those overland flow pathways intersect with our rivers and streams. So if you were going to, if, you, if this stream in the picture has a phosphorus problem and you want to address it, you will go first to the blue areas uh, to look at where the highest risk areas are in the landscape. And then you would look at the flow paths, which are the orangey red lines there. Those are where how the phosphorus is going to move over the landscape to get into the nearest uh, river or stream. And the red dots are where you would put your break the pathway measure, your interception measure at the last point before your, um, you meet the stream. So measures for phosphorus then. Well, we can use the picture there shows you what these overland flow pathways look like and where your interception measure could go. We've got over a thousand water bodies that need these types of measures. And we can use these maps now to really pinpoint around 2,400 kilometers of river bank, which is less than 2% of all our rivers that need pathway interception measures. And as I said, these have co-benefits for biodiversity. ASAP now are using these tools. So it's really helping um, in the landscape. So what are pathway interception measures? What do they look like? Well, these pictures give you some ideas. They're riparian zones, buffer zones, uh, native woodlands, engineered ditches, wetlands and ponds. And there's lots of co-benefits there for biodiversity, sediment and uh, pathogens. So now moving on to 
the nitrate uh, pollution impact potential map. And in this map, it's a purple color. The darker the purple, the higher the risk for losing nitrate to uh, waters. What does the model look like? Well, we start off with the land use and stocking data from DAFM. We combine that with a farm management and leaching model. We use a Chagas end cycle model. We look at how the landscape is susceptible for losing that nitrogen from the land down into the groundwater. And then we pull that all together, look at the attenuation and the losses and calculate uh, the areas of highest risk of losing nitrogen. And there's the final map. So what do the measures, uh, how, how can we target the measures for nitrate? Well, we've over 500 water bodies that need nitrate measures. And we also have a number of drinking water supplies that are impacted by nitrate and trends are increasing. And these two pictures here show you what the map look like, looks like. It's a bit different than the phosphorus map. We don't have the overla overland flow pathways because the pathway is straight down. So it's just the, uh, the, the landscape map. And we've been able to target 6,900 kilometers of highest risk critical source areas where we can pull those out, where the nitrate losses are likely to be the highest in the south and southeast. And these now can be used to target the nitrogen reduction measures. And what kind of measures are they? Well, it's, it, it's, it's kind of standard measures that have benefits for ammonia and greenhouse gases. We're talking about nutrient management planning, soil fertility, protected urea, mixed wards, reduction of chemical N and use of less. Essentially, it's about efficiency and allowing less nitrogen, using less and allowing less nitrogen to leach. So now I'm going to take you on a brisk, a very brisk tour of the Blackwater catchment in County Cork using the mapping tools that we have now on catchments.ie, our website. So where is the Blackwater? It's about 3,000 square kilometers. It's in North Cork, and you can see there it flows into the sea at Yall. This is what the water quality looks like, the ecological status with the five different colors. We've got lots of uh, greens and blues in the Blackwater, which is great. We've got some high quality areas. We have some areas in the middle there, which are more the oranges and the yellows, which isn't great. So there's a mix, it's a mixed bag. Now we have a look at our uh, ecological status information and our fish information and our nutrients and our hydromorphology. And we pull together a risk assessment or how likely is it that each of those water bodies are not going to meet, meet their water quality targets. And this is a traffic light system. So red means these water bodies are at risk and they need measures. Uh, oranges are in review where we need more information and greens are not at risk. So again, a mixed bag. I suppose one thing to point out is not only do we have the rivers here that are in difficulty, but also the estuary down near Yall needs some action. So using the evidence base, uh, uh, over 140 different data sets we use, we figure out which waters are impacted by which activities based on the monitoring data and what's going on in the landscape and all our models and tools. So you can pull up a layer now and figure out which rivers and in the middle there, the solid blob is a groundwater body uh, and also the estuary, which water bodies are impacted by agriculture and need restoration. And it's important to point out that not only do some rivers need restoration where they're not meeting their targets, but we also need to protect those water bodies that are currently meeting their targets. Uh, to make sure that they don't deteriorate. So you can, can sort of- A question there about the, the, the likes of the river uh, agriculture pressures layer. How often is that information updated? Um, how, you know, how, how, re how much in real time is that? That is uh, once every, well, it's once every cycle that we do it at the moment, but our last cycle was condensed. So the last, this, this, layer here that you see is based on data to 2018 and the next time we do it I suspect will be when the next data set comes in either in probably 23 or 24 so it's every few years okay so we, we can divide the black water really into three blocks 
there's the upland part, which is the, 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 the western third, if you like, where we've got rivers that are in trouble. We have the middle third, where we've got groundwater in trouble. And we have the lower third, where the estuary, um, which drains into the estuary on the, on the right-hand side. So looking then at the pollution impact potential maps for uh, phosphorus first, you can see that the phosphorus risks are all in the upper third on the, on the left-hand side. So the, and that sort of makes sense from what I've been saying there about rivers being impacted by phosphorus. We have rivers in trouble, we've got uh, phosphorus in them and we have risky phosphorus risky areas in the landscape. So those dark blue areas are the, are the places to go and target uh, the measures that are needed. The middle block, though, as you can see, is not risky for phosphorus, but it is risky for nitrate when we look at the pollution impact potential map for nitrate. So just going back again to the western side, you can see that where you have a where we had a phosphorus risk on the last map, we don't have a nitrate risk. And that's because phosphorus and nitrate work differently in the landscape. So in the middle block here, it's really a nitrate concern. And that shows up in the drinking water, in the groundwater body, and also in the in the the, the groundwater body itself. So these are the areas, and, and if, if I think about also the estuary, we can't forget about the estuary, the place where we need the measures for the estuary, again, it's too much nitrate in the estuary, but that's the whole of the catchment where we have the, the nitrogen risky areas. So now we can see that in the black water, we would be looking to see, could we get nitrate measures in these dark purple areas to try and help the groundwater and the estuary. So what are the actions needed to summarize? P pathway interception measures in the headlands to restore and protect rivers. In the middle part of this catchment, we need nitrogen reduction measures, source reduction measures uh, and, and minimization of the leaching to restore and protect drinking water. And also that will have a benefit for the estuary. And then in the lower part of the catchment, we need nitrogen, again, nitrogen source reduction measures to restore the estuary and also to protect the river because this difference between restore and protect is really important to get to, for us to get our heads around. We do have water quality problems that we need to address, but one of the biggest issues we have is that we, we do great work in some water bodies, but other water that work is offset by deteriorations in other water bodies. So we need to stop that slide. We need to protect what we've got and then work on restoring uh, the bits that need work. So where can you find out what's going on in your local area? Well, I'd point you towards our website, catchments.ie, and you can click along the top there to our mapping system. And once you go in there, I've been showing you the maps uh, from that system all morning. I wasn't game enough to do a live demo, uh, just in case. Uh, you can find what the status is and the risk is for your local water bodies. And then you can look at the pressures and you can look at the pollution impact potential maps in there as well. A couple of tips with this system. I would say number one, be patient. These are very big files. And you, there is a progress bar that goes across the top, a thin green bar. So keep an eye on that and see how it's going. Don't give up. If, you, if it hangs on you and, and it doesn't load, clear the cookies and the cache would be a, a tip. Um, and then just to say as well that the speed of, of how you can use the maps and how they refresh will improve once you've loaded them once because they get stored in your cache. And also the last thing then is just to watch for the zoom control. So we have a zoom limit on these maps. These maps really, the risk maps are not really field scale maps. They're more townland scale maps. So we have a zoom control on it so that you can't zoom in too far beyond the, the, the scale at which the maps are reasonable. So this is my last slide. I suppose my take home messages are there's a strong evidence base now that we need to take action to improve water quality. We know that. We also know now that not all uh, catchments and not all farms need to take the same actions. But we do have now the science and the tools to better target the right measure in the right place. And we need to join up the policy and the messaging and the actions and the supports to help farmers put the right measures in the right place. 
and there's a real, real uh, exciting opportunities in front of us with with ASAP, I would say, you know, the early signs, as I as I mentioned at the start of the areas for action showing improvements across all pressure types. They, they weren't only selected for agriculture, but there's lots of improvements going on in all sectors in those areas. But certainly it's encouraging to see the progress and to see the engagement that that farmers have with their ASAP advisors. And then finally, we, we really would uh, benefit from targeting measures that will achieve more than one environmental outcome. So what can, we, what can we do in the landscape that will help for water quality, air quality, biodiversity, climate, natural flood mitigation, and also the public community and our own health and well-being. So that's it. Thank you, Mark. Thanks very much, Jenny. And a really great run through of the, the current situation in relation to the water quality. Huge volumes of data there uh, being accumulated obviously by the EPA and we had um, Eddie Burgess and uh, Noel Meehan in talking about the the catchments program at ASAP and a lot of data being collected there as well so it's it's great to see that happening. Um, uh, Jenny lots of questions coming in here straight away on your presentation and uh, I asked you earlier on about the how often those uh, agricultural pressure maps are updated and uh, I suppose there was a point uh, being made in the original question was, you know, are we capturing how how the stocking rates may have changed? And uh, so there's a further supplemental question to that to say, well, if there was further intensification of, of um, farming in some of those areas, that wouldn't necessarily be picked up in those current maps. Is that correct? That's right. So the DAFM data that's embedded in those maps is 2018 data. It's a fairly big job to, to redo those maps. So that's why we were, we can only really do them every few years. But certainly that's one thing we, we want to do is to try and take in more frequent updates coming from DAFM and rejig it and then try and compare that to what's happening in the water quality so we can, we can see how the story is unfolding. Absolutely, it's important. There's a, a common theme coming out throughout this uh, series around, um, let's say, people who are not adhering to, to, to the spirit, we'll say, of the, the regulations. Uh, one example of that is where the, we have the, the, the no spread in times for slurry and farmyard manure. Um, and often, I won't say often, but we do see farmers spreading slurry uh, after the closed period, but maybe during inappropriate weather or soil conditions. Um, and this it seems to be an annoyance to a lot of other farmers because, of course, you know, they're, they're, they're letting the side down. I mean, in terms of like what you described there in your presentation, you talk about uh, a lot of, um, you know, there's, there's just those land types that just need better care, I suppose, when it comes to phosphorus and, and, and nitrogen is maybe more linked to intensity. But what would you say to uh, around those, those issues there where, we still have, we have the existing, we have regulations there, um, but maybe if everyone were to play by the, the current rules that are there, we probably would be in a, a better situation. Absolutely, Mark. You know, I think every, every catchment has a nutrient limit that it can absorb and still retain good ecological status. And so it's not doing anyone any favours if, if poor practice that's not in accordance with the regulations is taking up some of that available room, if you like, in the system to, to absorb the nutrients, is the, taking up some of that resilience. So, so absolutely, that's the first, the first place you would start, I think, is to try and uh, encourage people to just do the right thing, to, to take some of the pressure off the system that will allow then the good practices to, to continue. Because certainly all the evidence is showing that what's going on at the moment as it is is not sustainable from a water quality perspective in certain parts of the country it's not everywhere there's good practice going on everywhere uh, but there are some of our catchments have exceeded their nutrient capacity and not all of those nutrients come from agriculture we have to acknowledge that as well but by far in the rural area it's the biggest source of these nutrients is uh, agriculture. So everybody has to play their part, not just agriculture. But every has, everybody has to play their part. But absolutely, you know, if you were to if you were to tear up and rank the uh, the measures, you'd you'd have to think that uh, having everyone playing their part and doing the right thing is one of the top things off the off the list that you would look for. 
Uh, I know when, uh, a good few years ago, there was a lot of talk about um, catchment scale uh, wetlands as a solution, maybe of, of blocking that pathway. Has, has there been any more work or development in that area? There's a lot of research going on uh, with it. Um, certainly in the UK and uh, New Zealand as well, and that we have our own research projects going on too. Um, I, I think there's promise in there, absolutely. Well, you know, one of the, the ideas, I, and, and I haven't run this by really too many people, but potentially could we change some of our ditches, change, change the structure of some of our ditches to effectively be a series of ponds with, that have vegetation in them, but have the, the, the buns between the ponds, the long linear ponds they would be, but put, uh, I, I saw this actually working in the UK, put a 12, 12 inch pipe in the earthen bund between a series of pools. So the pools were maybe 20 meters long and then there was an earthen bund in the ditch and in the, in the, just up off the bottom of the ditch, there was a 12 inch pipe. So the idea was that the water flowed into the first pond the sediment and all the nutrients and the chemicals dropped out, the water kept going through the 12 inch pipe into the next pond mm -hmm. and into the next pond and into the next pond. So that's what I meant in the picture there about the engineered ditches. Mm -hmm. I think that's got real promise. It's not something we've trialed in Ireland, but it's, it's, you know, it's the land, it wouldn't be taking up any extra land. That's always the big criticism for these wetland type projects is that sometimes they can be huge and they'll take land out of production. But I think we could be exploring what else we can do with our existing ditch network. Yeah, I think there were some issues, I think, with the accumulation of, of phosphorus into sediment within some of those ponds. Uh, um, look, we won't, we won't spend too much, time, too much time on that. Pat, a lot of questions coming in here for Jenny. Yeah, a few nice simple ones, maybe, uh, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> just uh, one here, uh, excellent presentation, Jenny. Does uh, EPA contribute to application for nitrate stake der uh, derogation? And do you envis envisage changes in the directive going forward? Nice and easy, you said, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the EPA is part of the nitrates expert group that reviews all the submissions and supports the two departments, the two departments being Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine, and then also uh, Housing, Local Government and Heritage. So they're the two departments really whose responsibility this is. But we do sit on the, the nitrates expert group along with uh, Chagask. So that's our, our contribution. And then we make submissions, obviously, uh, like everyone else does. Um, with, with regard to the changes in the directive then, was that the nitrates directive, you mean? Yeah, and, yeah. and I suppose the derogation issue is the derogation. A, a part of that. I don't know is the short answer. You know, I've th there's certainly uh, the mood music coming from Europe is that Ireland needs to get its act in order from the water quality perspective. The pressure is coming on. The, the, the commission want to see more progress in from the under the WFD, that is, you know, the, our water quality is not improving. Our nitrates action program is one of our key measures to try and achieve our water quality targets. And so we need, we need a strong nitrates action program this time around, absolutely, that's going to deliver for us in terms of improving our water quality. We don't have a good look when we're going to Europe that, you know, half our rivers and lakes that we monitor are not in good condition and the trends are not going in the right direction. So we need to take some strong action, um, not only for Europe, but also for ourselves. You know, we rely on our clean green, green image. We need clean drinking water. We need it to support our health and well-being and our, and our livelihoods. So it's time. Jenny, we have a question here about the, uh, the, the levels of nitrate that you could possibly have a, a, a catchment with, at good status, for example, but still have a nitrate level there that's going to cause problems downstream or um, at an, an estuarine level. Is, is that the case? How is that managed? Absolutely. That's, that's re really important. So when we monitor ecological status, we monitor a whole load of different things. So it's, it's the insects and the bugs, it's the fish, it's the, the nutrients in the water, the chemicals in the water the physical habitat condition and we put all of that in together and it's it's called the one out all out principle the the one of the one element that's the worst drives the overall outcome so when you see maps of those five colors of ecological status there's a range of different things that go into deciding what that status is so i mentioned at the start that 
uh, nitrogen is more of a sensitive nutrient for estuaries and coastal waters and less so for rivers. It does play a role. It's a nutrient and it does contribute to the algae, but we see a much closer relationship between the phosphorus and the ecological health of a river system. So this is a kind of a long winded answer to your question mark that yes, you can have a, a, a river water body that is in good ecological health because it's got low phosphorus and it's got healthy bugs and it's got good fish and your nitrogen level could be slightly higher than you'd like it, but there's enough resilience in that river water body to cope with that. But the estuary on the other hand is more sensitive and this is what happens in the black water, the estuary can be more sensitive to nitrogen. So it, it, it's, we need to keep an eye on the different receptors of interest. It also applies, I suppose, in the groundwater sense. You know, nitrogen is a problem in groundwaters because we, we have a drinking water standard for nitrogen. Phosphorus is often less of a problem in groundwater because it simply just can't get in. So depending on the receptor that you're interested in, there's different problems that can impact on it and, and obviously then different measures and different solutions. You referred to the ASA program or the Agricultural Sustainability Support Program, which is uh, providing, a, I suppose, a service uh, at, at a catchment level to priority areas. We have a question here around the scale at which that program is operating at. And uh, would you like to see an expansion of that service, given the, the early signs of improvement in, in those, those priority areas? I, I think the ASAP program is very encouraging. Even just the simple uh, methods they have of engaging directly with these the farmers that are in the areas that are having difficulties, you know, that we're targeting the messaging into those areas. So for those that maybe aren't familiar with how this works, so we do our national uh, assessments of where the problems are. And then inside, inside those 190 areas for action, we have a new, relatively new local authority waters program who goes out and actually walks each of those streams and looks at the lakes and, and looks at the estuaries if there's estuaries in there as well and picks out, does some local science, I suppose, takes our national science and refines it in the local sense and looks at the particular problems and they where some of those problems might be related to agriculture, they refer those areas on and the problem that they see in the water directly to the ASAP advisor. So the ASAP advisor knows before they even arrive at the farm gate, what the problem is in the water, whether it's a nitrogen problem or a sediment problem or an ammonium problem or phosphorus or, or what the problem is. And they know that they're in an area where there's risky soils because they have these, these pit maps. So already there's a, there's the conversation is going straight to the solution. At the, at the farm gate. So just even that process itself is really positive and beneficial in terms of being efficient to try and get to the, the right measure in the right place. So certainly I think there's huge scope for uh, expanding it and rolling it out. Obviously, I don't have to deal with the resources issues or any of that, but conceptually and, uh, and certainly from, from the success of the program so far in terms of the level of engagement that farmers have had with their asset advisors, I think it's really, really positive, yeah. Jenny, there's um, a question here. In light of the, the catchments-based work data and assessments that you outlined, uh, are there merits in having a, a regional uh, catchments-based or RPM-based approach to uh, uh, deciding on measures? Yes, and we do do that to a certain extent. We have a mix of uh, measures going on at different scales. I suppose we have our national measures and our, our national basic measures in the agriculture space would obviously be the nitrates action program. It would be the asset program. It would be the CAP, um, the, the agri-environment schemes. All of that kind of goes on nationally. They're national programs. But more and more, we're targeting those programs and tailoring them for the particular issues that occur in particular areas. So we have the burn scheme, for example, there's the Duncannon scheme, there's the asset program in these 190 areas for action. We have all our results-based payment um, programs. We've got the bride that we heard about last week. You know, there's a, there, I think we're, we're definitely moving as a country to tailoring and targeting our actions and our messaging for the particular problems that are in particular areas. So absolutely, we would, we would, we would really support a catchment-based approach and, and a more targeted approach to try and achieve what we need to achieve. We, we think that's maybe one of the reasons why, I mean, there's been a huge investment in measures over the last 20, 30 years, and we haven't really seen the return for it. 
And one of the reasons for that is potentially because we've had a scattergun approach. We spread ourselves too thin and we haven't maybe been targeting the right measure in the right place. So there's huge opportunity, I think, with all that we know now and the tools that we have and the structures we have with our EIPs and the results-based programs and ASAP and LawPro to really get into areas, find the problem and get it fixed. Jenny. Listen there, does Jenny agree that the water pollution is not only coming from, from farms with bad practice? Uh, an intensive farm in an area vulnerable for rain could be doing uh, everything right and not breaking any regulations and still be causing uh, pollution? Uh, yes, because I mentioned at the start that every catchment has a nitrogen limit. And some of those catchments in the south and southeast have exceeded that limit. So we need to look at the overall total nitrogen usage the and the budget, I suppose, the nitrogen budget in that uh, catchment. And I, I think bef before the um, we, we ramped up our intensification in some of those areas, we were, uh, I suppose, offsetting some of the more intensive areas with some less intense areas. And the net budget for the whole catchment leading down to the edge estuary was okay. But as we bring more and more nutrient into a catchment and we, we get closer to the catchment's limit, then we're in trouble. And then we need to look under the hood and see, well, what are all the different practices going on in that catchment to contribute to that nitrogen budget? Some of them will be, as Mark said at the start, because of um, poor practice. Some of the, well, illegal practice, I suppose, is the low, lowest hanging fruit. But then I'm sure every farmer probably would acknowledge that there, there could be some improvements to be made in efficiency with what they do have at the, at the current uh, stocking rates and the current level of intensity. So that's the next lowest hanging fruit, I suppose. What can we do in terms of you know, soil fertility, improving our nitrogen surplus balances? You know, that there's lots more in that space I think we can do as well. Um, and, and then the final, final cut, I think, in the, in the hierarchy of actions is to look at uh, the overall stocking rate, the overall chemical nitrogen use. And we can't forget the overall uh, contribution from urban wastewater as well, although it must be said it's relatively small compared to the agricultural load. Okay, there's a question changing tack a little bit. Can you say a bit more about hydromorph hydromorphology issues and, and just, I suppose, an explanation of exactly, because that, that tends to cause people uh, a bit of difficulty getting their head around exactly what that means. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fairly, um, it's a relatively new uh, concept in, in managing water quality across Europe. It came in in the directive when the directive came in and, and it's, at the moment, we, uh, I suppose to say our science is evolving in it. And essentially what it means, it's, it's made up of two parts. It's the hydro bit and the morphology bit. The hydro bit talks and speaks to the water flow in a river. And in a lake, it would be the lake level regime. Uh, and in an estuary, it would be the tidal regime. So it's, it's the water regime. And how does that, is that in good condition? And is the, the river flow regime behaving as it should do. So for example, do you have flood peaks at the right time when the fish need to get that trigger to run up the rivers and spawn? So do you have a flow regime that's gonna support that? For the most part, uh, the, the flow regime modifications are, are more critical probably in, in other member states where they have very, very large dams and hydropower systems across their rivers. We don't have too many rivers that have impacted flow regimes. We do have some. Um, so that's the first part of it. The second part of it then is the morphology bit. And the morphology bit is the, the physical habitat conditions in the, in the stream, Again, if I use that for an example, but the same, we have hydromorphology in lakes and, and estuaries and coasts as well. So in, in the river then, the morphology means the, the house, the home, I suppose, for the living creatures, the sediment base, the riparian banks, is, there is the vegetation good? Is there food for them to eat and a house for them to live in, I suppose, is the, is the analogy. So the, the kind of impacts then on the morphology would be the sediment, as I mentioned earlier, 
Um, also, the flow regime can impact on the morphology. So if we don't have the right flow regime moving through a catchment, you won't get sediment moving through. Sediment isn't always bad. You do need sediment in a system, but it's just excess of fine sediment that can be an issue. So it's about really looking now at the habitat conditions as well as the nutrients and the chemicals in the water. It's about the habitat conditions in the in the rivers and lakes and estuaries and coasts so that you have a, the foundation, the home, if you like, for a healthy ecosystem. So our tools are, are evolving on how we actually measure that. And uh, it's not, I would say, fully integrated into the WFD at the moment. We, we do incorporate it at high status and we do look at it at other status classes, but it's definitely the poor cousin of what we know and how we manage nutrients. But certainly it's a really important uh, element in the mix. You know, if we, don't, if we don't have a healthy home and something to eat, then we're not in good shape. There's a question there, an interesting one, uh, saying, indicating that we, we uh, re uh, regulate and, and manage uh, predominantly based on uh, uh, timings and rates. But, but uh, a question there, should we be focusing more on, on weather conditions uh, as part of that, uh, of that control mechanism? The weather conditions are really important. And we, we can see from all the evidence base that we have, if I was to draw a Venn diagram, think back to your, uh, your secondary school days. If I was to draw a Venn diagram of the key factors impacting nutrient transfer in catchments, number one would obviously be the source load. So where's the nutrients coming from? Number two would be the soils. And number three is the, the, the weather. You need the rainfall flowing over the landscape. Just take the phosphorus example. You need the rainfall to drive that phosphorus overland in those overland flow channels into the, into the stream. That, so the, the rainfall is a really key factor. Rainfall is also a really key factor for nitrogen uh, leaching because it pushes the nitrogen down through, in, through the soils and into the streams. It also, it's not just rainfall also, but it's also uh, temperatures and um, uh, soil moisture condition in the soil. So there's a lot, there's a lot involved there in the climate space, and it is a really key factor. We, we think back, for example, to the 2018 summer period when we had a really dry summer and there wasn't enough rainfall there. We saw in our water quality data in September, October, when the first rains came, we saw a massive pulse of nitrogen coming through the system being pushed through from that rain. There was also mineralization going on in the soils because of the weather conditions, but, but all together, all in, there was a, there was a definite response to, the, to that weather event. And we saw it continue into the spring the following year. So weather is a key factor, absolutely. To go back to your original question about we, we with the, the calendar farming, I suppose, I presume is really to paraphrase the, the question. Chagas has done the research to show that the, the most risky time from a weather perspective is that winter period. And so that's why I, I absolutely accept, and I think everyone would, that the, the dates are quite a blunt instrument, but they definitely are correlated to the highest risk time in terms of soil temperatures and, and growth, in terms of rainfall, in terms of daylight length, in terms of soil moisture. That is, the, the winter period is the most risky time for for losing nutrients through the landscape. So, so yes, it's a blunt instrument, but it's, it, it's doing its job, I suppose. It is, it is protecting us in the most risky time. Just following on from that, uh, Jenny, I mean, there's a question here around the, the, the role of enforcement and uh, what, what, where do you see, or what role do you see enforcement playing in the next cycle of the, the River Basin Management Plan? Or is it, is it, you know, are we gonna see any changes there? Well, my, my sense, and you raised it yourself earlier, Mark, is that, you know, people don't like to, to see uh, other people not stepping up when they themselves are stepping up. So I think it's important. It's, and it's, you know, we, we want, we have ambitions in, in growth. We, we want to, uh, as a country, we want to, to, to push our agricultural production. We've got a great image to sell. We can't afford as a country to, to damage that image, I suppose. Um, so, so yeah, I think non-compliance and, and not stepping up should be called out. And, and I, I do think there will be a, a greater emphasis on it going forward and, and not necessarily only from the regulators either. I mean, you hear it on the ground, you mentioned it yourself. People are, it's frustrating. I mean, we all know 
you you, uh, you, do, you don't like to be in a position where you feel like a, a fool because you're making all that the efforts on the hard yards and maybe someone down the road isn't bothering. So, yeah, I do think it's important. You mentioned pesticides in one of your slides there in the context of, of drinking water quality. But what what uh, how important are pesticides when it comes to the actual ecological status of water? They're very important because what we find is there are some uh, chemicals used in the rural environment. Uh, one example would be uh, sheep dip, for example, which are really, really uh, toxic to the, the aquatic insects and the, the fish uh, that are in the water. So one drop of a, a, a toxic chemical can wipe out the living things in a, an average small Irish stream for 30 kilometers. So it, it is a massive, uh, there are massive impacts. Thankfully, we, we don't have them too frequently around the place, but they're really evident when our biologists go out and, and do the, the annual sampling. It, you can tell straight away going to a site where it, it's like an apocalypse. There's nothing living left. It's the, those chemicals are really damaging to the to the aquatic ecosystem health. So as I say, thankfully we don't have we don't have all that much of it. But where it is happening, it's uh, devastating, and it takes years for those aquatic ecosystems to come back after after an event, a toxic event like that. Uh, there's a, a couple of questions in relation to you. To, you, you mentioned uh, wetlands, ponds, about the, the need to start uh, looking at uh, the impacts of these and the possibilities for, for, for uh, uh, putting them in and trying out things. Is that something that we need to, to focus on now? I'd, I'd love to see some more look at that. Absolutely. I think there's huge, huge scope there, but particularly for the phosphorus and the sediment issues, because I mentioned earlier that it, it takes such a tiny amount of phosphorus to cause a water quality problem. To, to put it in perspective for you, if you were to lose, you take an average Irish catchment with an average Irish small stream, the amount of phosphorus that it would take to cause a water quality problem is the equivalent of 200 grams per hectare lost into the stream. Now, you don't lose phosphorus evenly over the landscape, as I've been showing with my uh, my pip maps there. But if you were to lose it uniformly across the field, it would be 200 grams per hectare. Now, that's minuscule amount compared to the amount that is used in normal agronomic practice. So it's an insurance policy for us. We're never going to get where we need to get with phosphorus by just managing our sources on the landscape and doing our, our nutrient deficiency and all of that, because we just, we just need to use a lot more than, can, than we can afford to lose. So these pathway interception measures are like our insurance policy. If we can break that pathway and stop that, that phosphorus getting into the streams, then it will help pay dividends in terms of protecting those streams. Yes, we need to be efficient. We need nutrient management planning. It's just good practice. It's good for the economics of the farm uh, and it's good for agronomic growth. But in terms of water quality, that on its own isn't going to achieve where we need to be. So yes, I would love to see some, some further research and exploration of how we could incorporate these in the landscape. And also because they have their bi the biodiversity benefits as well. There's great... Um, there's great scope for them. And, and particularly, as I mentioned, that example about the ditches, if, if we could modify those, there are already areas taken out of production. So there could be a potential win-win there. Okay. There's a question there about uh, the, the, the potential role of, of forestry in, in water quality and the issues and actions that might need to be taken to, to try and reduce the, the impact. Absolutely. And, uh, and that's a good question. We, we do know when we pull out our high status waters, they often tend to be in the headlands of catchments, right up in the in the high parts of the catchments. And those are also the areas that are most often forested. And so when we look at the, the range of significant pressures in high status catchments only, forestry comes out on top. So there is a, a job of work there for the forestry sector as well. The key problems that we see in those catchments are uh, firstly, sediment coming down through those catchments during a forestry event, whether it's thinning or, or felling or, or reforestation when new drainage and new roads are going in. Um, so that th those issues need to be managed. 
Um, absolutely. We do have a legacy issue, though, with forestry that we are going to have to get over as a country where we have a lot of uh, plantations on peat soils and they're going to mature over the next 10, 20 years and they're going to have to be removed. And they are very tricky to work with in terms of protecting water quality on those peaty soils. So, so that's going to be a real challenge. I suppose the last thing I'd say about forestry is that forestry can also, like, like agriculture, can be part of the solution. You know, there, there are an increasing number now of grant and premium schemes where you can uh, get support to plant a native woodland in a relatively small area. So our ideal, again, a, a potential win-win scenario is to look at some, look at the PIP map, look at some of those critical source areas where, where you've got the highest risk and focus planting native woodland, small pockets of native woodland in those areas to act as pathway interception measures. So again, just, I suppose, thinking outside the box of how can we get, that would be a win for water, it would be a win for biodiversity, um, and it would be a win for climate because you'd have the carbon uh, credits for the trees. So, absolutely. Okay. One more of those very easy ones for you. Does Jenny believe we can continue to expand dairy uh, while reversing agri-water pollution and, and meeting uh, water framework directive objectives? <laughs> Save the easiest one for last, Pat. Um, that's a that's a difficult question, and as, as I hope I've conveyed all morning, uh, it's not a it's not a one size fits all answer. There's no doubt there are some places in in the country where we've exceeded our our nutrient capacity. And we need to take some action. And we've talked through the range of different, you know, the low hanging fruit and the efficiencies and whatever else. So I suppose what I would say is I, I definitely think there are some places where we've, we've reached our limit. And certainly the messaging coming through from the minister in the climate space and the ag climatized strategy as well is that, you know, there's that there's a serious conversation to be had about the further expansion in the context of our environmental challenges, not just water, but, but, more, but more widespread. But definitely there's more urgency in some areas than others. And so I, I would encourage that we look from a water perspective, that we look at a, a catchment based approach because, you know, the climate measure could be just a fairly blunt instrument to cut by a certain amount to meet a climate target. But if that cut isn't in the areas where we're going to get a water benefit, you know, if the cut ends up being up somewhere where, where it's not going to achieve a water benefit, then maybe we've we've missed a trick. So I, I'd really encourage, I suppose, that we try and join up those policy instruments. Can we can we achieve more than one environmental outcome with the same tool for biodiversity, for water, for water quality, for climate? And also we haven't talked much about it, but also for natural flood retention measures for natural flood management, I suppose, and then also our immunity and our, our health and well-being. Uh, a question here, I'm oh, sorry, Mark. Just a question here, are the uh, PIP maps available online? And maybe in answering that, you might just allude to the absolute wealth of, of information that's there within the, the, the uh, catchments.ie website uh, in terms of just the, the huge variety of information that's there. If you can take the time to actually do a little bit of exploring in there. Absolutely, and I, I put a screenshot in there at the end to try and encourage people to do that. Catchments.ie is the website. Within that, we have a lot of uh, literature and, and interesting stories about projects and activities that are going on in communities uh, around the country. But we also use it as our, our science repository. So there's a lot of uh, reports in there, there's data. You can go in and pull up, for example, a trend of what's been happening with nitrogen concentrations in your local monitoring point. Uh, and then the pit maps are in there. Uh, also, all of the urban wastewater treatment plants, all of our pressures are in there. There's a huge amount of information. So, yeah, I would definitely encourage people to go and have a look. And at the very least, have a look at their own area. Absolutely. Great, Jenny, we're going to have to leave it there. We're right out of time. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. I think the, the for me, the, the main message is the, the, the right measure in the right place uh, seems to be... Uh, 
the, the, the mantra from today. And uh, I think it fits very well with the overall, you know, the, the questions that were coming through. So thank you so much for your time today. And it's great to have you back on the series. And hopefully we'll have you back again in the future and keep us up to date on, on the developments there, particularly around the maps. I have included in the chat uh, there the links, direct links to those two website, the catchments.ie and direct link to the, the mapping element as well. So uh, people are welcomed, as Pat says, to, to take a look at your own area and to see what the quality of the water is like and uh, what's happening in the, that area. Before we go, I just want to remind everyone that we do have, uh, where the, the Department of Agriculture is uh, still running the National Dialogue Series uh, in connection, collaboration with the United Nations Food S Systems Summit uh, 2021. And there's some really excellent uh, dialogues taking place, which have already uh, taken place from the 21st of April and are pre-recorded, are recorded and available to, to download and watch now. Uh, but the next one, which is taking place on the 4th of May, which is next Tuesday, uh, is about promoting an inclusive food system for the future. So I encourage anyone who's uh, interested in food sustainability and food chain sustainability to take a look at those that series. Uh, Jenny, thanks again. And Pat, thanks for helping with questions today. And thanks to our production team, uh, uh, Andy Boland and Yvonne Maher. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagask.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.